This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B-E. That's IXL.com slash B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education who now works to help schools redesign their schools. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in snowy New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety, and today from the field of advertising. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. It is a real pleasure for me to introduce a longtime colleague and friend, Scott Rabinowitz, who's joining us here today, as Jethro indicated, to talk about some of the issues around online and digital advertising. By way of background, Scott is an interactive media specialist who joined the digital marketplace in 1998, so really just about three years after the World Wide Web got started. He provides advertising business development strategy and management support for entertainment, e-commerce, and technology and digital media brands worldwide. Over the past 22 and a half years, his body of work has included managing more than 200 million in online advertising campaigns, as well as advisory and hands-on marketing advertising, business and corporate development roles for a mix of brands in many industries. Scott was among the first digital marketers to profitably source direct response traffic campaigns for paywall-enabled subscription content sites in multiple age-restricted industries. Spanning his time working around internet content and traffic management advertising sales industries, Scott has also contributed commentary and articles 
to various interactive media and entertainment industry outlets, including Brand Channel, Marketing Sherpa's Content Biz, The New York Times Online, and WebmasterRadio.fm. A passionate advocate for online child protection issues in the digital age, Scott served on the Advisory Council for ASACP, an internet entertainment industry organization solely focused on child protection best practices by entertainment, traffic, and technology hubs online. And it also gives me great pleasure to say that Scott has joined us as our initial mission partner for this podcast, so we're very excited about that. Buoyancy Digital, the company that that Scott runs, is proud to be an inaugural mission partner for the Cyber Traps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms for IAB, Google, and Bing accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers. Let's chat. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media. There's a little tiny R in there, which I got. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Fred. Good morning. Uh, and good morning, Jethro. Thank you both for having me as a guest on Cybertraps. I'm honored both to contribute to the evolution of Cybertraps, which is an amazing collection of, of information that has a, casts a much wider net in terms of the folks that I think need to be concerned about the well-being um, of youth in the digital age. A couple of years back, no one would have even thought necessarily to include deeper subject matter beyond these stranger danger elements and staying away from things that are salacious. And at this point, it's just as critical. I'm admittedly biased because I'm both a father and also a, a proud member of the advertising industry. Without question, there's been a, a, a big sea change of, across the last two generations of folks that have grown up with digital and being able to understand and identify what is and is not advertising in context is actually as critical for uh, a single-digit elementary school-aged child as it is for an adult to avoid everything from scamming and phishing traps to even just inappropriate manipulation of your shopping behaviors and how you spend your time online. So it's a pleasure, and I'm uh, happy to be part of this today. In fact, as part of our decision-making as Buoyancy Digital, as an agency to be your inaugural partner um, or mission partner, we have determined that instead of just supporting the brands and the publishers in the advertising space, that we'd actually like to work more closely with organizations, gatekeepers, government, and the like, as it relates to both policy and even best practices. My my own personal experience has been that the few times I've directly hands-on shown parents some best practices as far as identifying and working around advertising. They're taking notes as much for their own use (laughs) as they are for their kids because they're tired of getting the big brother follows and all of the very, for lack of a better way to say, and all the advertising people are going to hate me for saying this, but advertising in 2021 online is intentionally invasive. Well, actually, Scott, that is such a wonderful lead into my initial question for you, which is that you're really the first advertising guru that we've brought on the show. And I think you play an important role in that sense, because obviously 
advertising is so fundamental to the function of the internet. And as much for me, honestly, despite having studied this for a while, as much for me as for the audience, it would be great if you could set the stage, if you will, in terms of the role that advertising plays, maybe a little bit about how it's developed and what drives the use of advertising so that then we can dig into how parents can protect kids and so forth. First thing, a very abbreviated neutral reality check on the notion of the freedom of the internet. So we have to look back as far as media outside of digital to gain proper perspective. As people will remember that are of a certain age, when television was first becoming an active medium of communication and entertainment, arguably speaking, more than 50% of all of the broadcast minutes, in some cases more than 80%, depending on where you were in the country and the like, was sponsored or advertised content, if you will. And that is regardless of whether it was acknowledged as advertising or as with any other sort of semantically approached labeling. As marketers, we're quite guilty of spin. But if you were to go back and look at the literally the top 20 programs on the radio and on television between, let's say, 1935 and 1955, you'd actually be hard-pressed to distinguish truly what is and is not sponsored content. But what it came down to, and as it pertained to the internet, is at the end of the day, content is either supported categorically speaking. There are many iterations, but at the broadest level, in order for you and I to enjoy content on the internet, much as we would on broadcast linear television, either we are paying for access to said content directly, so thus we are inside of a paywall, and paying for the privilege of the content, and even for the privilege of keeping the ads out if the, the media provider allows for it, or regardless of how it looks, how it's presented on screen, whether it's obvious, deceptive, or otherwise, in effect, it's either ad-supported or paywall at the most crude hierarchical level as to all content. In effect, if the internet did not have advertising behind it, in fact, I would argue that some of the most popular sites that we pull entertainment and information from as individuals, as professionals and otherwise, if we had, I th- I'm going to cite a relevant circumstance of the last year. I, most of us are probably guilty of either actively or temporarily having way too many streaming content memberships. And in theory, part of that was to gain access to better stuff to watch and with less ads in our way to be able to enjoy said material. Otherwise, we could all just go to YouTube or less savory environments online and watch an appropriated version, if you will. In effect, by following that primordial guideline of either being advertising, sponsorship, or otherwise third-party supported, or first-party supported, it's left actually very little room, so to speak, unless a broadcast medium and a particular publisher or brand has the ability to directly charge you or monetize the audience in one form or another all of the best content that you would desire to watch and perhaps have been watching and viewing for 10, 20 plus years now online is ad supported. Even again, most notably where it's not obvious anymore. And that's one thing that I want to talk about is where it's not obvious. And so I learned about a term a while ago called native advertising. And I really want to pick your brain on this idea because I thought if I heard something on the news 
then it was vetted by a journalist. I would hear both sides of the story. And I've learned over the last few years that I'm experiencing less and less of that. And so talk about what native advertising is and where we see that and how we can tell whether or not it's an advertisement or an actual uh, objective piece of information. Absolutely. The backstory as to why there is now native advertising and why it has almost crusader-like support from literally from traditional corners of media like Madison Avenue that's been rebuilding itself 15 years ago. The Gray Lady, the New York Times, they didn't want to even have conversations about paywalls. It was a begrudging, why are you pushing this forward, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's a matter of survival. Like with all things, though, advertising uh, was put, was actually taken ridiculously out of hand by those that could exploit it. And that's not just the brands that wanted to sell things to the general public. That's also the media sellers and the platforms. If you are an individual website or a content network or a social media platform or any other aggregator bringing in and, and retaining the major sponsor ultimately has required deeper and deeper creativity. The ultimate transition as to why native advertising, and we'll define that for practical purposes as advertising I'm going to give you two definitions. The real definition from my point of view without the spin is advertising that is willfully intended to either defeat ad blockers and or give the impression to the reader that it is content. So by definition, native advertising is deception. And I apologize again to my peers. And for the record, I have bought and sold native advertising On the commercial side, it serves its purpose, but I'm going to read you a quote from an unnamed native advertising provider that literally speaks of it from a best practices point of view. When when we were still having conferences and you could put 10,000 people in a room that were all advertising professionals, get ready for this uh, quote. If it looks like an ad, feels like an ad, and talks like an ad... It's not done. That's the core principle of native advertising, literally coming from a chief executive. Wow. And as it relates, yeah, let's, let's unpack that for a second. It's a, that's literally the overt, and that's exactly it. Native was created as an ad format, a physical, visible, whether it be boxed, we'll use the, the, the most basic of concepts here. How does it look on screen or on your device? And For many years, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, or IAB for short, standardized what banner sizes or ad sizes looked like. No matter where you went on the internet, that leaderboard or banner at the top of the page was either going to be 728 by 90 pixels or 468 by 60, but it was standardized no matter who the brand was, what the content was, what the financial arrangement was. That actually became a very easy opportunity for the developers in the ad blocking world, which are very much a part of the cyber traps community and and the like, to start what I call a a polite form of marketing arms race. And it's basically the senior developers or programmers from the ad blocking community and the senior developers and, and, and programmers who support the trillion dollar marketing universe. So basically... What's happened is ad blockers came into play and said, okay, what can we, with a flick of a switch for you as the consumer, 
easily block out. The IAB has told us there's 11 standard banner sizes. So if we put in those parameters, boom, we've just blocked out your inconvenience of even having to be exposed to that banner. What that's also done, though, or what that did at the time when that was that race or or arms race of of sorts was starting is, as you might imagine, um, it was economically damaging to publishers, to the people that are actually providing the content that you learn from or enjoy uh, for entertainment purposes. And hence, truly, why I refer to it as an arms race, it was literally the ad blockers announced we've now blocked this additional format that was literally waving the red flag in front of the most talented technical people in the world to defeat said block by coming up with a format that could still be displayed. That cat and mouse type of arrangement of ad blocking and thus the evolution of native or to keep it as simple as possible, we'll call it non-standard ads and by non-standard how they look to you, the end user or consumer. And that doesn't matter regard, uh, since you guys have worked with all platforms, which I appreciate and is the overarching concern here. There are ad formats, whether they are text, whether they are graphical or even less obvious. Somebody could sponsor a page, a web page, uh, a social media fan page or brand page on any platform. And even by virtue of having Uh, a non-clickable ad presence, just having their name in the background and the watermark very prominently all over the page, et cetera, that's still native content though, because that's by definition, you didn't voluntarily agree to engage that content, especially if you are a wise progressive end user and a parent, and most likely as as is the case in many households, you probably have ad blockers. It's a, it's an easy way to operate by having it on default, but as a result, native advertising as one last bit here, just for a visual reference could literally be any physical shape in the aesthetic sense of shape. So if it looks like an ink splat where you couldn't even measure it correctly, unless you went around the grooves, et cetera, ad blocking software is not going to pick that up immediately and maybe not for a while yet all of a sudden the huffington post now has an ink an ink slot ad unit and it's prominent for three weeks five weeks a couple of months or whatever it's not even necessarily because the that design was what the brand wanted or the client wanted it's because that was actually the most compatible native format that would not be deflected by advertising protection. I was watching a a movie on Disney plus the other day, and I saw a little thing that popped up at the beginning that said, this movie contains product placement. And so that's another form like you were talking about of native advertising. And I didn't think immediately what products were being placed, but then as I watched, I could see which products were product placement. For example, the cars are a specific type and the heroes drive specific cars. And so it's easy to tell that's that must be the product placement, for example. So uh, how prevalent is this non-standard or native advertising? And, and how, especially how prominent is it in places that we feel like we should already trust, like a news organization or something like that? Putting product placement in movies, I get that. That's not, to me, that's not uh, as 
offensive. What's more offensive is a specific news story, for example, where it they're supposed to be unbiased. They're supposed to get both sides and they're really just promoting this, whatever product they're promoting through the native advertising. Correct. And before native for the record, there was another wonderfully spun term called advertorial. Yes. Nice advertorial. Down to it and whatnot. And yet, to anybody with journalistic integrity, it's even if they have to eat, their intellectual soul knows that it's blasphemy. It's, and again, for the record, we've lived in the pool. So there are brands that will be loath to admit that they've been the beneficiary of said circumstances and the like. But to give you an idea in context of how big a category, at least from what's been measured, not all of it has, is measurable because if it's extremely non-standard, if it's a, we'll call it for lack of a better way to say, uh, a non-contract driven handshake arrangement and with an open mind to how your brand gets seen on my website, that may not even look like any definition that's known today of native advertising but if it doesn't fit into an established non-native format, every, it basically native is everything else and specifically everything else that cannot be easily determined. But uh, here, so here's the reference point. So display advertising in the internet context are, is technically the broader category that native falls into because the premise being most, of, most native ads are going to be graphical as opposed to text and, and words only. That's not necessarily absolutely true because here's the irony, besides product placement, the largest and original native advertising platform is the original online advertising platform and the largest in the world, Google AdWords. By definition, they're injecting commercialized listings. Even if they clearly identify it, nonetheless, they're putting it directly within the body of actual content. If you think of their organic listings being the movie you want to watch or the article you want to read, they're still forcing you to glance past it because of those three listings at the top that people have refinanced their uh, mother-in-law. and of course, <laughs> That's not intrinsically the problem, I would argue, and maybe Jethro disagrees, because your reference to these poor benighted journalists needing to eat is not out of place, or Google needs to keep the lights on. No. I'm not at all. It's balance. It's, it's a delicate balance. And that's why, for the record, I wish to clarify that I don't judge in either way, because especially with the global and social and just logistical circumstances of the chronology of the past year, basic needs are, absolutely, are hyper. Absolutely. But that being said, and I want to move on to another topic that I think does begin to get us into a slightly more ethically gray, if not fully black area. When I open up the newspaper and I'm reading the advertisements that help subsidize the cost of that newspaper, or I'm reading a magazine, obviously there's advertising throughout. And some of it is non-traditional. It can look like articles, right? So they do that there as well. But the significant piece of that and where the internet is qualitatively different is that those ads don't track me. They don't track my subsequent behavior. The next topic to reflect upon, particularly because I know parents worry about this, and both as users and as parents, is that there's an entire ecosystem out there designed to take our behavior vis-a-vis our online activity or these ads, and then to monetize and 
it, I hate to use this term, but really to weaponize it. Weaponize it or to, to excrete the maximum value from this. It, it, that's how the CFOs in these organizations would say. But also it. chosen words. <laughs> well, no, it, 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 it's absolutely. The publisher's responsibility economically is to figure out every way within tasteful reason to present monetization, advertising, commerce, or otherwise. It's actually a constant challenge. And in fact, this to, to illustrate that, in five years' time, regular banner ads on the internet from 2016 till now, in 2016, native advertising, as we're des- describing it today, represented a little over $13 billion in ad spend, billion with a B, even then versus at that point, 16.8 billion in regular, easily identified, what we'll call traditional banner ads that anybody could see, identify, close, block out, et cetera. Fast forward to 2021, and obviously we're still early in the year. This only even factors in a little bit of the after Christmas data roundup. Native went from 16.8 billion to 36.3 billion. So in five years time, the amount of revenue that the entire ecosystem of data-driven advertising, which is that element, as you've mentioned, for us to dig into, it's literally doubled. And I'm going to present a super quick, as you say, we have to look at it from both ends and whatnot. There are those that say it's insidious if they ad publishers and the ad networks did anything at all costs, so to speak, to increase the revenue to that level. But as you said before, some of that was born of necessity. So if I am being, if I'm consulting with, let's say the Huffington Post, I have not, but if I were to be working with their advertising sales team and their revenue team, I'd literally be looking at every millimeter, literally at every millimeter of real estate on the website, on the social pages, on the mobile apps, literally on any digital presence or touch point, because any digital presence or touch point, whether with or without a click-through being involved or required, can be a transport mechanism to deliver an ad. It's a, and for the record, it's so, all right, now we have a guilt, a a little bit of humor for the benefit of the audience. So everybody is tired of big brother ads that were retargeting and we'll get into that a little bit more, but that basically you don't buy something, but you looked at it for more than 10 seconds. And now it feels like it's following you um, around everywhere. Absolutely. So that is very much the data-driven or programmatic. Programmatic, again, another spin term, but that one you can blame techies and marketing people for. And cookies, right? That's the mechanism by which those ads follow you. If my wife is shopping for clothes and then gets the same general genre of products for the next two weeks. Particularly, too, and this is now hypercritical, so every place that we shop online or view content, or almost every place, encourages, if not outright, requires you to authenticate your identity before you can either view content or, or buy something reasonably. As we've all seen, though, not everybody chooses to develop their own identity authenticator, and thus it's become extraordinarily convenient for 
literally millions of websites and applications and services and communities to allow you to log in through Facebook or through your Microsoft. Somebody asked me recently, why would I buy an ad on Bing ads? And I had to explain to them it's because everybody who still uses Bing ads is a Hotmail user that got their original free webmail account 20 years ago, and you can immediately make assumptions about their age. And I have proven this empirically <laughs> so because n- nobody would willfully get a Hotmail account or use Bing otherwise at this point. It, it would be no disrespect to Microsoft, but the Internet was not their primary forte for all of their technical prowess. As a result, it's, uh, it, the demand has been very strong, uh, again, too, not only because of e-commerce needs and even the transition um, of that much more of the economy and even the educational realm, as you gentlemen know best, in the last year. I would say before the end of this year, the order of magnitude of extremes in terms of stats jumps with regards to how much content is actually being supported, not only by advertising, but more specifically by native. Because if you're responsible for revenue, as you say, keeping the lights on, keeping your staff paid, et cetera, and paying the hosting bill, you may determine that a greater percentage, let's use the Huffington Post or some similar type of environment, mathematically, their revenue leadership folks no, um, for every X number of articles and even down to X number of words that get published, how much monetization should be there as a prospective offset according to whatever their business plan and business model allowed for. Some of it's rational. Some of it is way out there, but it, everyone's got a view uh, of their value, of course. Um, well, I think what's fascinating about this, Scott, and we really could get into the weeds here, which probably is not super helpful. But it is absolutely fascinating to me, the relationship between data and programming and user interface and user behavior. Let's put a pin in that for a minute. We'll have you back at some point to really dig into some of these issues. But I think from a practical perspective, when I talk to parents about their children's experience online. There's two separate issues. There's educating their children about advertising in general, right? Because as a parent, you want children to be able to do critical thinking about what is being put in front of them. Even down to deciding, one of the most brilliant things that I heard recently was a parent who said, honey, if you click on that and buy it, that will take that amount out of your allowance pool and actually treated it strictly as an economic exercise, not even a safety exercise. And it was brilliant uh, because it was, uh, it was literally educating, uh, in this case, a six-year-old. At six years old, teaching not just about the value of money in a broad level, but dealing with the psychology of FOMO, fear of missing out and impulse buying. Even if it's not a trap, Nonetheless, though, if you buy everything that gets put in front of you, the economic lesson of of rationing and then deciding what's more important, are you saving up for the bicycle or did you really want that bedazzler kit for your fingernails that got shown on Instagram because they know that you look at bedazzled pictures? Let me bring in my own personal experience that happened just last week where my son was playing Minecraft and that was not a paid endorsement, but it is a fun game. <laughs> and, and he I'm wanted sorry, to would buy. would love it to be a paid endorsement, Minecraft. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I believe so, that's native advertising for the record. 
So he he wanted to buy some skins or some extra worlds or something in Minecraft. And I said, no, because I don't want you to spend your money for something that you can't touch and feel yet. I don't think that you're ready to spend money on something you can't touch and feel. When they do buy stuff, we want them to use cash to be able to say, I'm physically parting with this so that I can get something in return. Because I don't think their brains are ready yet to comprehend that money just exists in a bank account somewhere. And the the second thing about that that I want to say real quick is that when my kids are playing games on their devices and they have ads and you can remove the ads for one or two bucks or whatever it is, mm-hmm. I always remove those. Yes. For two reasons. One, I don't want them to have those ads in between every time they're playing their game and they're just watching these ads the whole time. Second, I would much rather spend three bucks to make sure they're not seeing all those ads than to have to worry about them then saying, dad, I want to buy this game or whatever. And I think for us, that's a solution that's working well in our family. If I can jump in here, Scott, real quickly, I think what you're getting at, let's just call this teaching kids click and effect because they need to understand what the consequences are of making these impulse choices and advertising. Equally as true for the adults too. I I was just going to say. This is really a consumer issue. (laughs) This is an overarching consumer issue because how's this for granularity? Before I had even contemplated that I was going to be receiving an AARP invitation last year, By January 2nd of the year in which I was going to turn 50, eight months later, I was already being presented in all of my digital feeds, targeted ads, not just for the AARPs and things like that, but like the people that do, that take real liberties with the level of data that they can get in terms of your interests on social platforms in particular. Not Cambridge Analytical scary, but not too far behind it. The, the, the fact of the matter is somebody figured out that it made sense. Let's show stuff from the year of the birth of all people in better turning of this age. So literally, and, and it's actually insidious and brilliant simultaneously. That's the challenge because, so here's the record for the record. I, I felt insulted about a hundred times last year, but I also bought three t-shirts. Look, <laughs> this is the perpetual dilemma, isn't it? Because <laughs> I I suspect, and then I want to move on to what I think should be a a big final topic for you, Scott, but I suspect that your mood has a lot to do with your reception of a given piece of advertising, because it seems to me that we all have the experience where we say, wow, this ad popped up, and actually that's really relevant to what I want. At the right time, exactly. And I think the challenge we face is that with some of these choices or with some of these technologies that are out there, we begin to worry about the extent to which the information that's driving the presentation of the ad is an infringement on what we consider to be our privacy. Correct. And obviously, I talk a lot with respect to mobile devices that for someone like Starbucks, the absolute dream is to be able to have a text message ad pop up about a block before you get to the Starbucks that you're about to go buy. Because it's so timely, it's so relevant. You would have vastly more experience. But in my very basic way, that seems to be the goal. So let's set aside morality and decency for a moment and look at even just consumerism and pragmatics. 
in theory, super targeted or programmatically targeted advertising, when it works well, while it's creepy as heck, there's no doubt. It's the absolute, the idea is to create a level of efficiency that if people thought it was amazing to control ads differently in the digital world 20 years ago versus print and radio. And it's in theory of benefit to the consumer and to the brand. If the brand's message, to use Starbucks as your example, is presented at the, the statistically speaking, the most viable time that could have impact for that user. And they're and then thus you you have all of these sets, just like in the world of psychology, triggers. In effect, at the on the industrial psychology level, triggers of, for behavior that would have been thought of in a clinical sense now actually provide a framework for programmers to know when exactly to put response. One one comment I did want to make with regards to the the in app concerns because this is a this is a huge monstrosity, especially for. Jethro, I get the impression that you have probably an extremely highly communicative and very transparent approach to parenting and dealing with your kids and whatnot. There are tons of parents that unfortunately are finding out the hard way that the default settings when they hand the phone, whether it's an Android or an iOS phone or tablet, doesn't matter. The default setting is not to require parents' permission for in-app purchases, that basically whatever Apple ID is on that iPad You'll get the prompt, and as long as you have the password, the fingerprint, or the iris that can be recognized, you've just completed the purchase without even necessarily... The prompts are clear, but I would venture a reasonable, unscientific guess that a seven-year-old may not necessarily know that a pop-up isn't just announcing the next level of the game as opposed to actually requiring them to buy something. And that's that part, to be honest, and that's why a big part of why we wanted to be involved with, with your program and just with this mission at a much greater level. Like I begrudgingly admitted, I, I don't want to be followed all over the internet by that pair of pants I didn't buy. But yet at the same time, if I must be shown an ad, taking the child consideration out of it and that security piece of it, as a consumer, I'd rather be pestered with something that at least statistically I've demonstrated some interest in as opposed to the generation like where Fred and I first started working together. The realm literally was the opposite. It was blind advertising. And that was the term, even if not entirely correct or politically correct and sensitive, as it implied the ad could literally and would literally have nothing to do with what was behind door number one. And that's actually tremendously worse than what we're dealing with today. Even though different problems that are unique to today, because there were, thank God we didn't have in-app purchases 20 years ago when it was only our 10-year-olds that knew how to use a PC. We'd all be broke. I I beg your pardon on that comment. I will say (laughs) I was able to keep up with the 10-year-olds a while ago. But that being said, Scott, I really did want to get to this because I know a lot of parents have concerns about the advertising that their children are exposed to online. I think Jethro's comment was brilliant because I have research files filled with kids who spend, you know, thousands of dollars on gold coins and skins and all the rest of that. So that's certainly a serious issue. But on a more basic non-monetary level, Mm -hmm. parents are always concerned about 
what products are being put in front of their children. You and I have spent time talking about this because, you know, as you were saying, in the early days of our relationship, we were dealing with an industry that got had problems with this in terms of age-restricted content. So where, what's the state of things these days and what can parents do to make sure their kids are protected? So the good news, at least with major brands, whether they be advertising industry providers and throughput brands or the actual brands that are trying to advertise to you, beyond just the the IAB, the Interactive Ad Bureau, there are a number of both self-regulatory organizations and there have been a number of actually voluntary professional practices that have been put into place, not too dissimilar from experiences we had many years back, but at a much larger scale across the entire mainstream advertising ecosystem. For example, and most notably, much the same way that parents have the ability to set parental controls with the, their children's devices operating system, the web browsers, and other individual components and the like. At the operating system level, as well as other kind of central hierarchical positions of control of how you function digitally, there is the ability to... So a takeaway item for sure is if basically for parents and educators that are not already deeply ensconced in ad blocker, I'd say that is step one without question, because while not perfect, especially as it relates to some of the native ads and some of the less conventional things, three quarters of what would be considered commercial advertising, regardless of how it's presented on the page, give or take, can be identified by ad blocking capabilities that parents can control at the browser level, at the operating system level, at the app store level. There are varying, even if you, and and in some cases, it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. It just may be that one is more familiar or convenient for the user. But I I would err on, I'm an err on the side of caution guy, much like Jethro. And I I agree even with the economic rationality. Setting the the settings high enough, for example, with the mobile devices so that if if your son or daughter has their own Apple ID or Android ID, It should absolutely be tagged that they're a minor, even if that's something that you have to do as the parent the second they first turn on that device. Because if that profile is not tagged accordingly, all of the capabilities and freedoms that an adult user that pays the bill would have exist, both for financial protection as well as responsibility, as well as content safety. There, there are people that will disagree with this, and most notably Facebook and, and Google are especially not happy with this suggestion. I recommend that everybody, child and adult, surf log out. If you stay signed in to Google, which is a very super common thing to do, if you stay logged in, that means every site that auto-logged you in without even having to try also just got access to at least a basic modicum of information with which they can start targeting ads to you, whether you are a child or an adult user. So just... Even at root, and and not all ad blockers are created equal, but if at root, if you were to enable a high setting ad blocking capability at the highest uh, hierarchy level up that your, your computing device allows for as a parent, one, and then two, when your children, 
as well as yourselves. If you are using free services, freemium services, everything has a cost as we all agree today. But nonetheless, though, staying logged into Google or Facebook enables even more sophisticated and granular targeting. So you can eliminate a sizable chunk of the capabilities of the next site to recognize you and thus what ad to show to you by being uh, logged out of Google, by being logged out of Bing or Yahoo, Facebook, Instagram, etc. Because it's not just while you're on the site, it's uh, your, that cookie or other mechanism, the, the user ID of the mobile device is being pinged in an old, for lack of a better way to say, I think of cookies being like sonar and radar, going back to the 1940s of submarine life and World War II. But it's active ping and passive ping. And you, if you disable the ability to be pinged even somewhat, you're already miles ahead of the average consumer who is being both overly bombarded with way too much advertising, too much that is personalized, and then most significantly as it relates to the risks with kids until there's a good procedural mindset in place, the economic risks, as you say, and as you are both well aware, there are too many one-click or semi-authenticated ways to spend entirely too much money for impulse reasons by a human being on the internet. That is actually, that's a super quick aside on that one. So last year, the year in the state of Colorado, I could tell that the ad industry was suffering because sportsbook, which is for adults only, of course, betting, which has been a contentious issue as to how legal it should be at all, even at the national level, but it's been decided by the states and rolled out by the states. I swear to gosh that I have seen, and I'll, I'll leave the names of the innocent out of the picture because they're just doing what they're being allowed to do. But the last year, quite literally within a month of the The first wave of economic impact from the pandemic hitting, Colorado totally changed its course. And I see ads for sports books on everything from Ubers to every channel online to garbage trucks to skywriting. It's all of a sudden as if if you're going to be at home and miserable, you might as well gamble yourself to bankruptcy. That's such a good point because we're just scratching the surface on all these things that we could talk to you about because what people don't understand is that this is a whole trillion dollar industry that they get paid big bucks to be able to get into our homes and show us things. And I think we need to have a lot of literacy around that and understand it. So I just want to say thank you for coming on. And we've definitely got to have you back on in the future. No, it would be a, it would be a pleasure. There are too many categories of media and technology consumption now that kind of have their own guidelines that people need to understand. Otherwise, they're Otherwise, we're operating on default settings, as I like to say. And if you operate on default settings, all of my evil cousins on Madison Avenue will follow you around the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) And on that cheerful note, Scott, thank you. This has been wildly educational, and it's always fun to talk with you. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, the teeming ads on the internet, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And uh, on LinkedIn, Scott is at Scott R Media. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed this podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.